It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Yeah, 2022 poll showed that nearly 40% of Gen Z adults believe Jesus wasn't sinless. Um, and a more recent poll, just last month, by the American Worldview Inventory showed that less than half of born-again Christians believe Jesus lived a sinful life, a sinless life, rather, sinless life. Why is this important? Well, it's it's not just important, it's crucial to understanding the gospel and why Jesus died on, on the cross. You know, only a sinless God could die for the sins of others. If Jesus wasn't sinless, then he died for his own sins. And this is the point of theology, of doctrine. You know, it's wonderful to have a relationship with Jesus that's emotionally satisfying, but unless there's objective truth supporting that relationship, Jesus might as well be a nice man who gives us comfort rather than an omnipotent God whose death and resurrection created a cosmic change in the fabric of the universe, defeating ultimate evil. What these surveys show is that a lot of Christians are missing basic information about their own faith. And luckily, a new book addresses that very problem. Dr. Robert Jeffers, senior pastor of First Dallas Baptist, has a new book out called What Every Christian Should Know, Ten Core Beliefs for Standing Strong in a Shifting World. Welcome, Dr. Jeffers. Great to be back with you, Lauren. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And, you know, I guess I know why you wrote the book, but tell me why you wrote the book. Well, it's exactly for the reasons you just stated. I mean, poll after poll shows that not only non-Christians, but Christians are refusing to embrace some of the most basic truths of historic Christianity. You cited the poll about what people think about Jesus' sinlessness. I'll tell you one other that really caught my attention was a few years ago, a poll that showed that almost 60% of self-identified evangelical Christians believe there's more than one way to heaven other than faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I wrote my book a few years ago, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. And uh, why is this? Why are they not embracing these basic truths? I believe it's not. It's because they're not hearing them in the pulpits of America. They're hearing how to maximize their career opportunities, how to have a satisfying marriage, how to budget their time. Those are all good things, but not unless they're built on the foundation of God's unchanging Word. So I wrote this book, What Every Christian Should Know. It's really kind of an update of basic Christianity uh, uh, by John Stott some years ago. Yeah, it's just looking at the too, ten yeah. core beliefs of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book. I read that book, and, and your book is great, too. I mean, you kind of updated some things, and but I mean, it's really great kind of laying it out to people in a very simple way. I mean, they can certainly understand it. But I think one of the problems is, you know, so many Christians have uh, misunderstood the notion of Jesus and sin because they— I don't know. There's something in the secular culture that says Jesus is just like us, so I'm a sinful person, so Jesus must be too, right? You know? Well, it's a, like the wag said in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and ever since the time, man has tried to return the favor. <laughs> I think we want to create a God who looks like us, and God 
frankly, of Jesus, his son, they are not the sum of our speculations about them. They are real beings who have real characteristics that we find in the Bible. And, uh, you know, Lauren, I think about the story about the first grader in Sunday school who was drawing a picture. The Sunday school teacher said, what are you drawing, Johnny? He said, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus, or, or of God. I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. Johnny said, they will in a few minutes. <laughs> and, you know, uh. this is what we're doing. We're drawing our own pictures of God and Jesus. And, you know, I th- you say, well, why is that important? Well, what we believe about God, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And is what we think about God, is it based on truth or is it based on speculation? Mm. I mean, this... Um, recent shooting that we've had uh, just 15 minutes from my house at the Allen Mall. Yeah. Uh, you know, you hear all kind of explanations. Well, why did God allow it? And people like resort to the Rabbi Harold Kushner idea. Well, God wishes he could stop things like that. He would like to, but his hands are tied and he can't. Wow. Well, when you have an unbiblical view of God, that's the kind of nonsense you end up with. Well, this is, and it's very interesting too, because <clears throat> one of the things that people don't forget to re- forget, really, is that we have free agency. Even though God is in control, part of being a loving being, ultimate love, is giving people the choice of whether to love him back. And a part of that involves sinning, you know, allowing them to sin, um, you know. That's um, right. And you're exactly right. And uh, the, where the intersection of God's sovereignty and human uh, freedom, so to speak, is, uh, I don't understand where that intersection is. But uh, God doesn't uh, impose uh, choices on us. He allows us to make those choices and live with the consequences of them. You know, I, I think, you know, do people kind of a faith just think kind of theology is just boring? You know, it's not emotionally satisfying. Theology is like, you know, scales are, you know, doing your scales, you know, when you learn <laughs> music or something like that. Oh, theology, that's boring. Oh, you know, tell me, you know, something exciting. You know, they, they love the music and everything. But, you know, theology itself is kind of boring. What, what do you think? Well, I think they I think they do. I think they think it's boring and completely irrelevant to their lives. But again, um, um, what we think about God, what we uh, think about heaven, what we think about the afterlife and how to experience, I mean, those are all very real problems and real issues for us. And I've tried to write this book, Whatever Christian Should Know, in a semi-entertaining way in the sense that I use lots of illustrations, try to relate it to everyday life so that it doesn't feel like uh, you're running the scales, so to speak. You know, you know from what I've observed— um, you know, the big things that people have a problem with are, you know, sin, salvation, and the authority of the Bible. Just those kind of, those three things kind of encompass a lot of what people have a problem with. And, 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 and you, you really do address these three areas. What are your top ones? What do you think that goes first when you're trying to address the 10 things that Christians should know? People are surprised that the first pillar of the Christian faith that I talked about, it was not Jesus Christ. They said, well, isn't Jesus the cornerstone of our faith? Well, yes, he is. Mm. But I made the first pillar the Bible and what we believe about the Bible. Because frankly, Lauren, there's not that much we would know about Jesus apart from the Bible. I mean, yes, there's right, external right. evidence that he existed, but I would never know that he's the Son of God. I would never know that he died for my sins. I would never know that he was raised from the dead apart from the Bible. And so I think it all starts with the Bible. 
And uh, as you alluded to, most of the questioning that we have about the basics of the Christian faith really comes to our questioning whether the Bible can be trusted. You know, it's the first uh, question that is found in the Bible when uh, Satan said to uh, the woman, has God really said? And I'll tell you, in my own experience, the thing that almost caused me to leave not just the ministry, but my own Christian faith as a as a college student was doubts uh, about the Bible that I was hearing at a so-called Christian university that wanted to point out all the contradictions in the Bible and why you really couldn't trust the Bible, or you had to believe that the Bible was uh, just a result of the culture in which it was written that hated women and so forth and so forth. And you listen to that garbage long enough, you begin to believe it. And I really came to a crisis point to say, do I really want to spend my life proclaiming the truth of a book that I don't even believe. And, you know, fortunately, God intervened in my life and put me in a school, a seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, where I learned you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe the Bible. Well, let's go through the Bible a little bit, because one of the criticisms of people who have never read the Bible, listen, I I mean, I work in TV news, people have a lot to say about the Bible who never read the Bible, Um, but they say, well, how can the Bible be the Word of God when it is written by the hand of humans. You know, what's yep. what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is that God used human beings to record his message without error. And uh, he didn't dictate <clears throat> all of the Bible. Some of it was dictated. The Ten Commandments I'm preaching through right now were dictated. But uh, God's Word, the Bible, includes, you know, the emotional outburst of David, uh, Uh, The teaching of Paul, the words of Jesus, and even the lies of Satan are recorded in the Bible. Uh, God's message that he wanted to communicate to us was communicated without error. And I think about Jesus. You know, you ask how you could have human as writing a Bible without error. Jesus is the living word of God. He was fully human and fully God, and there was no sin in him. The Bible is the written Word of God, and the same is true about the Bible. It is written by men, but it is inspired and superintended by God. And one of the other— By the way, I've got to tell you one thing, just kind of a funny— uh, story. Uh, I think you remember our friend Alan Combs, who used to work yes. at Fox before he passed away. Yeah. He was one of my earliest friends at Fox, and he would have me on the show, all, his show all the time <laughs> to talk about religious things, and he'd rid me, but we were great friends. And he asked me, he said, do you ever have any doubts about your Christian faith? And I said, not really. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, because I believe the truth of the Bible. He said, well, how do you know that the Bible is really true? And by the way, you have 45 seconds before our commercial. <laughs> so I, I thought real quickly, you know, the literary evidence, the archaeological evidence. And then I hit, you know, Alan, it's fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. The Bible is only the only religious book which you have actual verifiable prophecies that were fulfilled. You don't find that in the Book of Mormon or the Koran, but you find it in the Bible. And I think the, being the Bible is a narrative of redemption. There is a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Um, really helps understand and put everything out in perspective um, as well. Um, but one of the other one of the other objections, of course, they talk about translations. Well, you know, the Bible has so many translations and rewritten and rewritten. How can we be sure that what we've got today is the original text and what the what the apostles really intended when the prophets really intended? 
Well, and and again, I think one of the answers to that is the marvelous discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I was there at Qumran just last week. <clears throat> it's probably the most amazing archaeological discovery of mm. all time, you know, which basically shows that over a thousand year period, you know, the earliest uh, uh, uh copy of Isaiah scroll we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls was, I believe, 1000 A.D., and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, predated that by 1,100, 1,200 years, I believe, wow. and it showed that over that period of time, there was little to no change after copyist copyist after copyist uh, transcribed that book. And now they've come up with the Genesis scrolls as well. And so I think uh, archaeology has shown that there has been a reliability, a protection of those manuscripts. And by the way, I talk about this in whatever Christian should know. Yeah, you, you have compare, a really funny thing about, you know, people playing telephone, you know, <laughs> it's like you, you've yeah, got yeah, 50 people right. lined up and, you know, you know, well, you go ahead and explain it because I think well, it was very I'm funny. What I'm saying is... <clears throat> When you compare the works of Aristotle or Shakespeare or other ancient works of antiquity, we have so many more copies of the Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts. I mean, 25,000 New Testament manuscripts uh, that we have, and uh, there's very little difference in any of them. I mean, you could put all of the variations uh, in those manuscripts, you know, on a page and a half of the Greek New Testament, and they don't uh, affect any major doctrines. So there's some uh, good, sound intellectual uh, reasons to believe that the copy of the Bible that we hold in our hands today is what was originally written. Of course, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have manuscripts that are within decades now of the original writing of those books. And I think one of the other things, too, and I want to get to um, the idea of sin uh, again, but the idea of salvation. You know, lots of people in this sort of uh, pluralistic world, worldview kind of understanding, you have a problem with Christianity's exclusive claims of salvation. Uh, you know, you you say in your book, and it's a very obvious thing that people really don't like to hear when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that sounds pretty exclusive, and that, that turns a lot of people off. How do you How do you get over that, and how do you explain that to people? Well, you know, I, I was on an airplane one time and somebody was telling me that they, they gave up Christianity because of the exclusiveness of the gospel. And uh, I, he said, I can't believe in a God who would damn everybody to hell just for not believing in his son. And I said, just imagine this plane were to go down in a crash. And I, flight attendant gave me a dirty stare, so I had to lower my <laughs> preacher voice a little bit. I said, just imagine we crashed. The airplane was on fire. The flight attendant at the front was waving a flashlight and said, follow me. There's only one way out of this plane. Would you in, uh, accuse her of being uh, intolerant and hateful because she said there's only one way out? Of course not. You would follow her and you would thank her. And the fact that God says there's one way, the only reason he says it is because there is only one way. Again, I was at the Garden of Gethsemane last Thursday. I remembered when Jesus, the Bible says, prayed, and he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this experience pass from me. But heaven was silent because there was no other way. And listen, Lauren, if there are many ways to be saved, 
then the death of Christ was totally unnecessary. Why did he go through all that if all roads lead to heaven? But the reason he died is that was the only way to provide the redemption of our sins from our sins. And I think uh, it's a sign of God's love, not his hatred, that he has pointed us to the only way that leads to heaven. You know, one of the, you know, and you bring up also John 3.16, God wants to include whosoever believes in him. Yes. You know, this, yes. is, this is, you know, the, the road may be narrow, but everybody's welcomed. You know? <laughs> That's right. And that is the theme throughout the Bible, whosoever will. God doesn't want to save as few people as possible, but as many as possible. Why do you think we have this problem with authority? It's It really kind of boils down to people in this world don't want to be told what to believe or that they have to believe something. And, you know, I decide what's right and wrong for myself. Why do you think we have this problem with authority? We can thank our four parents, Adam and Eve, for that. Mm. Uh, You know, ever since the sin in the garden, it was a sin of rebellion. It was, uh, I'm not going to do what God says. I'm going to go my way. And we've all inherited that uh, tendency. You know, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have strayed everyone to his own way. And uh, we have inherited that. But I think it's the only explanation for why it is there's just such a basic rebellion against all authority and ultimately God's authority. Yeah, I mean, this is very interesting, though, too. You talk about angels and demons. Very interesting ideas um, that people... It's funny because you look at modern television and movies and entertainment, and there's a lot on demons going on in there, but not a lot on angels. So what, yeah. is, what is your take on the sort of angels and demons what what do we need to know about them well first of all they're real i mean there's a whole very real but very unseen spiritual world uh, ephesians 6 reminds us paul reminds us that our basic struggle is not against flesh and blood translation it's not against that uh, obnoxious employer or mate (laughs) that we have, our basic struggle is against the unseen forces of wickedness. And, uh, you know, uh, God created angels, Hebrews 1, 14 says, to be ministering spirits, to render service. I talk about in the book, they're really God's AAA service, always available (laughs) uh, uh, for anyone who turns to them. But uh, demons, the Bible teaches, are fallen angels. They had joined the rebellion of Lucifer and were cast out of heaven. And people who say, oh, that demon stuff, I can't believe that. Well, then you need to say Jesus was insane because he interacted with demons, talked to them, exercised them. And uh, if demons aren't real, then who was Jesus talking to? Yeah. Uh, the fact is, they're very real beings. And I don't think we're to go around looking for a demon under every bush. If we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we can have victory over demons and Satan's plan to destroy us, but we need to recognize that they're real. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Dr. Robert Jeffress. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And we are back with Dr. Robert Jeffers talking about his book, What Every Christian Should Know, uh, Ten Core Beliefs for Standing Strong in a Shifting World. You know, one of the things, and you don't actually address this in the book, um, because I looked at the, you know, looked at it and read through it, and uh, you don't talk about the doctrine of hell. 
that I could see. Um, is, is that on purpose or did I miss it? No, I think uh, my reference to it would be in salvation, mm. that there are not uh, there's not one destination. There are two destinations. Okay. Jesus talked about uh, some will be welcomed into everlasting righteousness and others into everlasting destruction. And the fact is, uh, I believe hell is a very real place. In fact, it's interesting. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Yeah. I wrote a book a few years ago, A Place Called Heaven. But the fact is, hell is talked about even more than heaven. And it's intellectually dishonest to say, well, I accept what Jesus said about heaven, but I'm going to you know, dismiss what he said about hell. He doesn't give you that option. It's a real place. And, you know, Warren, the most, I think, disturbing thing, and I think I include this in the chapter on salvation. Mm-hmm. The most disturbing thing about hell is Matthew 7, Jesus said more people will end up in hell rather than in heaven. I have people all the time challenge me about that, and they say, you know, if you say Christianity is the only way to heaven, then don't you realize, Robert, there are 8 billion people in the world, and most of them aren't Christians? How could so many people be wrong? It's unthinkable that more people would be in hell than heaven, and yet that's exactly what Jesus predicted when he said, and you alluded to this, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. But also, you know, this is why he he said the Great Commission. He he, he gave the Great Commission, go to spread the gospel through yes. all the nations throughout the world and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission, so it's not as if he's saying, well, you know, Go talk to a few people and those who believe, you know, you know, I guess we'll be saved and, you know, don't bother about anybody else. You know, just kind of keep it to yourself. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of um, I'm, it, I'm actually kind of um, stymied um, at an article today about the Texas laws. And you're down in Texas. So this you would know about this, about the Texas laws that all lawmakers uh uh, wanting to put chaplains in public schools, and another law about displaying the Ten Commandments. And the story in the, um, I think it was the Dallas Times or the, whatever Dallas paper talked about, it, it came out saying, you know, some kindergartner is going to, have, going to go to school with the words, do not cover thy neighbor's wife, you know, around them. I'm thinking, why did, would you pick that Ten Commandment? Why wouldn't you pick thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not murder or kill? (laughs) Why would you pick that one? And so right away, the journalist's, um, you know, uh, you know, bias was showing. And even the even the title of the article showed that, you know, is lawmakers trying to impose Christianity in public schools. Wow. You mean. 50 years ago, it was accepted that you could display the Ten Commandments. It was accepted that you could say Christmas. And it was accepted that, you know, when the teacher said, you know, said, thou shalt not kill, had authority. What's happening? And especially journalists, you know, it bothered me. I I actually considered writing her uh, an email saying, you know, why would you pick thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife for a five-year-old to show how ridiculous that was? Why wouldn't you pick thou shalt not kill? Are you allowing that one? I mean, I just, anyway... You speak now because I've vented enough here. I'm actually preaching a series right now on the Ten Commandments, and I'm talking about this 
situation in Texas. But look, you hit upon a good point. Uh, that is, you know, for the first 160 years of our nation's history, the Ten Commandments were not only displayed, they were taught. But in 1980, in the case of Stone versus Graham, the Supreme Court was dealing with the uh, display of the Ten Commandments in Kentucky schoolrooms. They weren't being taught, they were just being displayed. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court, in all their collective wisdom, said if the Ten Commandments are to have any effect of all, they would not only be displayed, but they might be uh, venerated and actually obeyed by children. And this is not an acceptable objective under the First Amendment. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was just amazing. Now, that's 1980. 17 years later, in 1997, in another Kentucky school, Heath High School in Paducah, Kansas, or K- Kentucky, a student, 14-year-old, who had obtained a handgun, approached a group of students, opened fire, killed, I believe, five, and seriously wounded three, all in a school where 17 years earlier, the Supreme Court said, you can't post the words, thou shalt not kill. Wow. You know, Hosea 4, God said, because you've forgotten my law, I will forget your children. And I just believe what we're seeing in our country right now is the result of refusing to acknowledge in the public square a God to whom we're all accountable. See, and this we is, are not smarter than God is. <laughs> we, well, see, and this is the issue. This is exactly the issue. It is about authority. We simply do not like the authority no. of God over us, even for the display of the Ten Commandments. And they would rather sacrifice children, you know, to this idea that, you know, your morality is what you make up and your fi- your feelings are your are your faith rather than actually bow to the authority of an almighty God who says, thou shalt not kill. That's right. And, you know, I go back to 1980 and go back, you know, thankfully we've got a more conservative Supreme Court, but that can change at any moment. But, you know, what I always ask people, and I think when I uh, used to do your spirited debate show, we would get into this with the guests sometimes about, you know, what changed in 1980? Did the Constitution suddenly change to say that what had been allowed for 150 years? Did somebody add an amendment in the middle of the night that we didn't know that said now it's unconstitutional? I mean, what changed? And the Constitution hasn't changed in 150, 60 years. What changed is we've allowed the liberals to pervert the First Amendment into something our forefathers never intended it to be. It's not a should be a prohibition from religion. It's the free exercise of religion. That's what the First Amendment is about. And what about these chaplains? And then the article also brought up that they were going to be unlicensed chaplains. It's like, I'm sorry. Again, this is inflecting sort of this bias that says, you know, it's a free for all. Someone, chaplains can come into the public school. What's your take on this? Well, I tell you, I think we need all the help we can get right now. I think we are in a crisis condition in our schools and in our country right now. And, uh, you know, people would say, well, you have to allow, you know, this chaplain from this religion and this chaplain from this religion and so forth. No, you really don't. I mean, <laughs> I know this is unpopular to say, Lauren, but America was founded on the principles of the Judeo-Christian faith. And I don't believe there's anything wrong with having people who reflect that faith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people were talking about, well, this is a conflict of church versus state. And I know you've got a lot to say about that. Um, please say it, because this is an argument that is brought up constantly whenever people of faith bring their faith into the public square for issues like this. So what's your what's your what's your what's your debate when people say this is an issue of churches versus state? 
Well, first of all, the separation of church and state is not a phrase that you find anywhere in the Constitution. Uh, what is found in the Constitution is Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Our forefathers were very clear. They didn't want a state church to which everybody was compelled to worship in. And I don't want that either. Right. I mean, we talked about free will. But displaying the Ten Commandments, offering spiritual counseling is hardly the establishment of a church uh, of a state religion. And so, you know, what we've done is we've taken that word established and the Supreme Court through the years uh, and the Lemon Law and others uh, changed the word established to prefer or give preference to or so forth. Well, if the uh, forefathers wanted that to be the word, they would have chosen that word, but they used the word establish and were a far cry from having Christianity established as a state religion. I think what we have established now as a state religion is uh, secular humanism, which is a religion. Absolutely, it's a religion. It just starts from a different point. It yeah. starts from the point there is no God. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that John Frame said, and I love the way he said it, I mean, and, and I hope it, I remember John Frame saying, he says, there is no neutral position when it comes to it comes to faith. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Nobody has no opinion about a God, if a God exists. If there is a God that created the entire universe, the entire created order, he also created us. So everyone has a stake in what they think about God, you know? whether they believe in Absolutely. God or not. Yeah. And back to the Tozer quote, what comes into our mind when we think about God yeah. is the most important thing about us. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. If you could, um, when you talk about, at, in your book, um, the future things, what do you mean about the future things? What's important about that? Well, it's eschatology, the end times, and um, I, I do believe it's relevant. Uh, you know, people say, oh, all that prophecy stuff and revelation. Nobody can understand that. It's interesting. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible to which God gives a special blessing to everybody who reads and understands it. Mm. And I do believe there's some basic things we need to understand about the return of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a great story in 1961 when President-elect Kennedy went down to Florida to the Kennedy compound before the inauguration. Mm -hmm. He invited evangelist Billy Graham to come down and play golf, which surprised everybody because Kennedy was well known for disliking Billy Graham. Wow. But on the way back uh, from the golf course, uh, the president-elect was driving a Lincoln uh, Continental. He pulled it off to the side of the road, turned the engine off and said to Billy Graham, Billy, do you believe Jesus Christ is coming back to earth one day? And Billy said, yes, sir, I do. And Kennedy said, then why do I hear so little about it? Mm. And uh, I think the same question applies today. Uh, the fact is, Jesus is coming back again. For every one prophecy in the Bible about his first coming, there were eight about his second coming. And I believe it's important to understand the return of Jesus Christ, what it entails for us. Now, there's some fine points of Bible prophecy people can disagree on, but the basic plot line is very clear. Christ is coming back to reward the righteous and to judge the unrighteous, to set up his kingdom, I believe, to fulfill his promise to believe in Israel. And I don't think you can understand the Old or New Testaments without understanding that basic framework of what the Bible says about future things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in your conclusion, you really point to that as a way to sort of, not sort of, but to realign your life. I mean, this is a whole realignment of life. You know, religion is not something that is an accessory 
right? It is something that、That's、you、right. live through, and most people don't realize that their professed religion sometimes may not be what they're actually worshiping. And your book really points to the fact that this is how you can certainly and assuredly make God the focus、um, of your worship, right? That's right, and you know, Second Peter three, talking about the end times, Peter makes this conclusion: seeing all these things are to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord? Yeah, and just as, as a last thought, why is it important for people of faith, of any faith really, but for particularly Christians, to understand? The doctrines and the theolo- and theology behind their faith. Well, because this is what gives our faith、uh, substance.、Uh, again, if if faith is nothing more than what I think or you think, and so forth and so forth, it's not real.、Uh, these are the truths that God deposited in the Bible that we can build our life on. You know, Jesus talked about the two. People who built two houses. One was built upon sand, and the other was built upon a rock. And when the winds came and the storm blew, one、uh, house, the house built upon the sand, fell, but the house built upon the rock stood. And、uh, you know, Lauren, the fact is, a lot of people are building their lives on the shifting sands of public opinion or cultural preferences. And one day, their lives are going to collapse because of an unstable foundation. But as Jesus said, everybody who hears my word and acts upon them is like the person who built his house on the rock. No matter what happens, our lives will stand because it's built on truth. Wonderful, wonderful. I want to thank you so much,、uh, Dr. Jeffers, for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Listen ad free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad free on the Amazon Music app, or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. Always great to be with you, Lauren. Thanks. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Listen ad free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding; it's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern, or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.